0: Tonight we look at the second part of the three parts into which we have divided what is truly the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, the Lord's Prayer that he prayed just prior to his betrayal and ultimate crucifixion. We have already seen the first five verses of this prayer. prayed on behalf of himself as he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Then in verse 6, beginning as this prayer is recorded by inspiration, from this point to verse 19 and through verse 19, Jesus turns his attention in his prayer to the Father to his own apostles. And he prays for them, for their security, for their unity, for their joy, for their peace. Let's look for a few moments together tonight at this part of the Lord's Prayer. For those who were despondent upon hearing that he would depart from them, as he told them back in John 14, a part of the overall context in which this prayer follows that context as Jesus spoke to his apostles and as they were together in that upper room having observed the last Passover the Lord would observe on earth and having instituted the Lord's Supper it was then that he prayed verbally in their hearing this prayer and so they were able to hear the sentiments that he expressed for them as he prayed I have manifested your name to the men Whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then he offers these words. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. It is through this 19th verse that this portion of the prayer is offered on behalf of his apostles. The Lord willing, in our final study of this prayer, beginning at verse 20, we will see his prayer for believers for all time to come. But notice these things about which Jesus prays on behalf of his apostles. Going back to verse 6, where this part of the prayer on their behalf begins. He prays to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. What does it mean, I have manifested your name, I have made known? To manifest something, of course, is to make it known. But is he praying here to the effect that he has made known the name of God, that is literally just the name of God to them? Well, certainly the name of God would be involved, but that is not the totality of what Jesus speaks about here in this prayer, in this portion of his prayer. I have manifested your name would include, of course, and primarily involves the authority of God, not only his existence, not only that he is God, that he is Jehovah, but that he is authoritative and that all authority from the Father has been given to Jesus. You remember in giving the account of the Great Commission Matthew's account of it, Jesus came to them, the apostles that is, and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. From whom did that that authority come? It came from the Father. And so when Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, he speaks of his apostles and speaks of the authority of God that has been transferred, as it were, or given to the Christ as he lives among men. I have manifested your authority to them. And we have talked about in times past in other contexts, the fact that the name is more than just simply saying the name, but it involves the authority of the name. In this case, the authority of God. And the authority of God is the authority of Christ because they are one. And that is what is emphasized throughout this fervent prayer. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus made this succinct but significant statement, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus says, I have manifested your authority, Father, to those you have given me out of the world. Remember Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Obviously, that's the very idea about which Jesus is praying here, the very concept of authority is involved in the name i have manifested your name your authority your power your majesty your sovereignty to those whom you have given me out of the world they were yours you gave them to me but how did god give them remember we talked about this in the first part of the prayer that jesus prayed when he talks about those who had been given to him back up in verse 2 as you have given him authority over all flesh, the Son, that is, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Remember when we talked about that? To as many as you have given him. But we asked the question, how does God give disciples to Jesus? He gives disciples to Jesus as disciples have the kind of heart that will respond to the teaching. Remember John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45 we looked at last time. Jesus on that occasion said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. But how does the Father draw disciples to Jesus? Verse 45 tells us, It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught by God. There it is. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's a beautiful divine excri- uh, description of how God gives disciples to Christ. That is a divine description of how the Father gave the apostles, about whom Jesus prays right here in this section of the prayer, to Jesus Christ. How did he give the apostles to Christ? He gave them as they heard of the Christ, learned of the Christ, believed enough in the Christ to become his followers. Did they know everything about the Christ when they initially became his followers that they would ultimately No, no, theirs was a growing process, wasn't it? But they did have the kind of hearts that responded to the initial evidence and wanted to commit their lives to the Christ. And notice, in the latter part of verse 6, we get a further insight as to how that process is achieved through teaching. Notice it. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word there's another indication of how God gave the apostles to Christ same thing as in John 6 44 and 45 they have kept your word what word the word by which they were drawn to me the word by which you gave them to me and throughout this prayer one cannot help but be struck if one is conscious of it by the power and the importance of the word of God as it is emphasized time and time again by Jesus in this prayer, something that we do not dare overlook nor take lightly because the significance of the word, the power of the word is emphasized by Jesus time and time again. Here's one of those emphases. They have kept your word. And then in verse 7 of the prayer, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. How would they know? That all things that God had given, the Father had given to the Son, are from the Father. Well, one means would be by the very thing we're studying on Sunday morning in our Bible class right now, the miracles of Jesus. He confirmed that he was from the Father by the miracles that he performed to confirm his teaching. But the teaching alone was so authoritative, the teaching alone that Jesus brought to mankind, that Jesus brought to this earth was like no other teaching, and it itself stood out as authoritative, so that on more than one occasion the people who heard him were astonished at his doctrine because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so Jesus demonstrated to his apostles, whose hearts were right and receptive, that indeed what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus demonstrated and what Jesus lived in his perfect sinless life indeed was given to him from the Father. Now notice again in verse 8 the emphasis on the word. For I have given to them the what? The words. I have given to them the words which you have given me. And here's the key. And they have received them. Now notice another key in this verse. And have known Surely, What a process is presented to us here that is so powerful and so poignant, so important for us to fully appreciate in our lives and to try to help others to appreciate. And that is that we have been given the words which Jesus gave to them. We have been given all the words that Jesus gave to them. Not only the words He gave to them as He lived among them, but the words that He promised He would give to them that they were not able or ready to receive at the time He left them that would come through whom? The Holy Spirit who came to them and guided them into all the truth. And I hold in my hand the end product, the final result of that process. And because I do, and because you do, and because so many have access to it today, we can know surely. We can know as surely as the apostles knew who lived and walked with Jesus. We can know surely that He came forth from the Father. They know surely, He says here, that I came forth from you, and that, and they have believed. That you sent me. Are we at any disadvantage tonight over any one of those apostles? The answer is no. We are not at a disadvantage at all. We now live in that age in which that which is perfect or complete or whole has come. The very age which Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13. The age that he contrasted with the imperfect childhood stage of the church, if you will, when miraculous gifts were still available. But he said, The time is coming when we will know as we are known. When we will not look in that glass dimly, but we will see face to face. When was that time? It is now. It is now. We are at no disadvantage whatsoever. We bask in the full sunlight of the gospel dispensation with everything we possibly need to furnish us completely unto every good work, 2 Timothy three, sixteen and 17. And so if we will simply receive, as did the apostles, the words of Jesus, if we will receive them as they received them, then we will know surely and believe fully that he is the Christ. Then in verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. His concentration was upon the apostles and their security and their fidelity and their perseverance. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know, verse 10 reminds us of that, that wonderful fellowship that we enjoy, if we're Christians tonight, in Jesus Christ. And this verse reminds me of something written by the same inspired writer, the Apostle John, in First John chapter 1. When he speaks of the things that we, he says, have seen and heard, we declare to you, verse 3 of First John 1, that you also may have fellowship with us, and then he says what? And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's that beautiful relationship we have, fellowship with one another, but fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And that is very much, I believe, what Jesus is referring to here and praying about here when he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. We are God the fathers, we are God the sons, followers, and we are in fellowship with one another. There is no relationship that even approaches the preciousness of the relationship that Jesus describes here in verse 10 and that John describes in the passage we just noted from 1 John 1 and verse 3. Fellowship horizontally with one another, but most importantly, fellowship vertically with the Father and with the Son. I am glorified in them. And that statement reminds us that my responsibility as a Christian is to glorify God in me. And your responsibility as a Christian is to glorify God in you. And isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.13? beginning when he talked about being the light of the world, city that's set on a hill, and then in verse 16, Therefore let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are glorified in God the Father and in God the Son, and we are to glorify them through our lives. And what a privilege that is. And in verse 11 when he says, Now I am no longer in the world, He was still in the world when he said it. What's he saying? I'm about to be. I'm as good as gone. I am as good as gone from this world. I am leaving. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. And his fervent prayer for his apostles was, Keep through your name, that is by your power and by your authority, and that authority comes through the word, as we've already seen. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, That they may be what? One. As we are. We'll come back to that thought when we see his prayer for all believers for all time. Because that's a key to the unity that pleases God and the only kind that does. That they may be one, listen to it, as we are. The only unity that pleases God is the unity that is like the unity between the Father and the Son. Therefore, doctrinal differences cannot be that kind of unity. There's no way that it can be. And we'll look more at that in the latter part of the prayer. And then in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, there it is again, by your authority. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That the scripture might fulfill, an obvious be fulfilled, an obvious reference to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. But in verse thirteen, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, an indication, as we mentioned last time, that this prayer was being offered audibly. It was being spoken aloud in the presence of the apostles, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The apostles' joy, every one of them, except one according to tradition, John, the apostle, died a martyr's death. And yet they died in joy and in peace. Here we are back to the word again. I have given them, verse 14, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here in verses 14 through 16, the Lord prays for the the apostles' security. He has prayed for their joy in verse 13. He prays here for their their security, for their spiritual security. And what will be the key to their spiritual security being intact? It will be the word. I have given them your word. And then he adds, and the world hated them. Doesn't that tell us that the world, that is those who are truly of the world, will hate the word? And isn't it demonstrated day in and day out, perhaps more today than at any time in our lives, that those of the world hate the word? And they do, because he says, they are not of the world, the apostles, and so the world hates them. But we're in awfully good company, aren't we, if the world hates us? Because Jesus says, just as I am not of the world. If we are not of the world, and we must not be of the world if we are to be pleasing to God, then we are in the best possible company we could be in. We're in the company of Jesus. Jesus. Because he said, I am not of the world. And in verse 15 he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Don't put them in a monastery. I'm not praying that they become ascetics and live the life of a monk and hide themselves from the world and hide their influence from the world. That's not what I'm praying for. But that you should keep them from the evil one. And our prayer should be, not that the Lord would take us out of the world, but that he would take the world out of us and make sure that we keep the world out of us and that we remain those who are not of this world. Just as, again, he reiterates in verse 16, I am not of the world. And then he prays for their sanctification, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification, as we've often talked about, it means to be set apart for a holy use. We're to become more Christ-like every day that we live and to set ourselves apart from the world, as he has just pointed out. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. But again, the sanctification... That they're to maintain as they go into the world is a sanctification that comes by the truth. And if there were any doubt as to what the truth has reference to, Jesus removes the doubt. Your word is truth. You know, we have often related that to John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Put that with John 17 17 here. Sanctify them through your truth, your word is truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in truth. Sanctify through truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, worship according to the truth is worship according to the what? To the word. And any worship that is not in harmony with the word is in vain. As Jesus himself said of some in his day, In vain they worship me. How, Lord? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men it could not be clearer that sanctification through truth is sanctification through the word, and that the only way we can maintain that sanctification is by remaining true to that word in our worship, in our work, in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. But then there's something interesting in the final verse at which we look tonight. Jesus says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now we just said sanctification means to be set apart for a holy use, that is to be to come out of the world and come into Christ and to set ourselves apart as those who've been in sin but are sanctified, set apart. Was Jesus ever in sin? Of course not. Therefore there must be an unusual sense or a different sense in which he uses the word sanctify in reference to himself. And it is obvious that that is a different way in which he uses it He is setting himself apart for what? Not from sin, but setting himself apart to become the sin offering for all mankind. I am sanctifying myself, that is, I am determining, setting myself apart to be sacrificed so that mankind, all mankind, may have the opportunity to be sanctified through the truth. And oh, what a poignant and powerful and moving statement that should be to every right-thinking individual in our world. Jesus set himself apart, set his face, as one scripture says at one time in his earthly ministry, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What did that mean? When the scripture says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, it means he knew where he was going and he knew why he was going he was going to die for you and for me and that's the obvious way in which he uses the word sanctify here in verse 19 I am sanctifying myself setting myself apart as the only sacrifice that can take away the sins of mankind so that mankind may be sanctified again by the what by the truth Do you realize how many times in this portion alone of this prayer the truth and the word used interchangeably are set forth? Verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 8, I have given to them the words which you have given me. 14, I have given them your word. 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. Verse 19 I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. How truly powerful and all sufficient is the word of God. Have you obeyed that word tonight by a belief in Jesus as the Christ? Have you repented of your sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and been buried with Him in baptism? All the remission of sins if not we plead with you to do that if you need to come home to your first love we plead with you to do so in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in a public way and for those who need no repentance no response whatsoever may you continue to magnify and glorify in your life the one who prayed so fervently on this occasion and then followed through on that commitment in that prayer to sanctify himself by setting himself apart to die for you and for me, and thankfully to rise again that we might have the hope of a resurrection to eternal life in heaven. As we stand to sing, will you come if you need to?